The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. What are you doing? We'll see how these things work. Why? Because it's there. Isn't that a line from Mountains and Three Minute Miles? I'm going to tell you something. Miracle of miracles. You remember the big blackout in 1965? Whole East Coast blacked out for a night. Well, I never told anybody this, but I caused that. Why aren't I surprised? All the time. The whole time I was growing up, my mom kept telling me, David, turn the lights out in your room. There are children in China who are in the dark. And all the time, the whole time, I never turned them out. There's a rebel in me. I admit it. So one day, I'm over at my friend Jeffrey's house, and I remember thinking, oh, no. I got to get home before my mom gets home from work because, dangerous guy that I am, I left the lights on. For no reason. They're just on. Wasting energy. Wasting money. So I get on my bike, and I'm riding home as fast as I can. Right? Because I, I got to beat my mom home, right? And I, I get home, slam on the coaster brakes, throw the bike down. I look up and I see the lights are still on. I also see that my mom's still home, so I figure maybe she hasn't noticed yet. So I go into my pocket for the key. I figure I'll go in, sneak in, turn the lights off, and I'll be safe. I go in my pocket and there is no key. Which means I got to ring the doorbell, which means my mom has to come answer it, which means she's going to go by my room, see my lights are on, and realize once again that I cannot possibly be her son. There must have been some mix-up at the hospital. This is a riveting story. Anyway, I press the doorbell, and it goes ding. Is that it? That's the story? Don't you get it? Normally, our doorbell goes ding dong. This time, it just went ding. And I turn around and look, and all the lights on my block go out. I did it! Overloaded the whole system just because I left the lights in my room on. I never told that story to anybody. I wonder why. So, now, whenever I see a button... Press it! Put me out of my misery and press it! My kind of button. All right. Can we leave now? Nice. Ferb takes me back to my days at San Quentin. It's a joke. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, August 27th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on 94.9 CHRW Radio Western, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, it's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. You know, I remember the great blackout of 1965 and exactly where I was when the lights went out walking down York Street on my way home up Rectory towards the tracks, towards Hamilton Road, and all of the traffic was snarled from the lights not working. But at least now we know who caused it. (laughs) We also know that keeping the lights on and having a reliable source of cheap electric power has become very critical to our own survival. And currently, pardon the pun, We still get the bulk of our reliable base electricity supply from nuclear energy, and it appears that this trend will continue into the foreseeable future as well. So today our focus will be on energy, broadly, but more on the issue of what we should be doing with the nuclear waste that our nuclear power plants are generating. Right now there's a political controversy surrounding this issue gaining momentum right here in Ontario, but that won't be the focus of our show today. Um, Since what 
to do with our nuclear waste is at its heart a technological and scientific problem. Our focus today will be to entertain some very interesting ideas and proposals of how to virtually eliminate our nuclear waste entirely. So just before I introduce my in-studio guest who has one very unique and innovative solution to the nuclear waste program or problem, perhaps more than one, don't forget that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. And it is his third appearance on the show, the last having been exactly six years ago and one week ago, and I have once again been inspired by the inventive mind of my guest, without whom this topic and theme might never have been raised on the show, the political issue aside. I'm once again honored by having with me in studio today Andy Jansen, entrepreneur, inventor, science, and technology futurist. Andy, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here, Bob. And we're going to be talking... Now, the last time you were on the show, which was like six years ago, you were here on the issue of, uh, of, uh, of your hydrogen project. And uh, you want to just give us an, an update on that issue? Because uh, we haven't talked to you since then, and at that time, um, you had some successful experiments done up here at the University of Western Ontario um, with your hydrogen issue, but for some reason it never went anywhere. So what happened in that regard? Very, oh, very well, curious follow-up here. Well, the NRC confirmed I was 2.35-fold better than any other storage device that currently exists. Stor uh, storing hydrogen, right? Stor storing all gases, yeah. so even considering as a scuba application, welding, medical gases. But I was primarily interested in hydrogen as a fuel. Mm -hmm. And um, found out had this ability to take what would be the approximately the size of your barbecue propane tank to just a little bigger than a softball. It'd have the same uh, capacity inside, which would uh, give the cars powered by hydrogen the range that they seem to lack right now. Right. And, and so what happened to the market? At the time, everything looked very promising. It looked like this might be something that might take, you know, the consumer by storm, much like the electric car and all that stuff, it never went anywhere. Why is that? Well, it's, a lot of it has to do with money. I approached several levels of government and several private sectors. and um, Unless you have something really tangible that you can drive up to these people, uh, they really can't take your uh, paperwork all that seriously. Oh, is that how it works? Now, you also mentioned that, that of course, the market kind of dropped out of it too, and there was a certain amount of fear on part of the market. Of the, that word hydrogen. Yes, right? uh, people don't understand uh, this rather simple element, and uh, everybody links it back to the Hindenburg, which is quite silly because when hydrogen burns, there's no flame, there's no color. Well, I, I would think more people would think hydrogen bomb. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, that, that was that was a term we used for quite a while. Yeah. Well, the two bombs were either plutonium or uranium. Mm -hmm. What was, what, was, what was hydrogen bomb about? What was that? Well, I think it was more of a cover story. Oh, was it really? Yeah, because you got the simple element, uh -huh. and uh, you can uh, take hydrogen, and you can compress it down, you can produce helium, and of course you have the core of the sun. Correct. I always thought, interesting, do you think water will ever become a fuel of any sort? Because here it is made of two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, two things that you would think would at least burn, if not explode. <laughs> I actually dabbled in that, yeah. and uh, I was trying to miniaturize a 
system called crown sheet separation on a locomotive. Or if you ever seen the old film where a ship is being torpedoed and it's sinking, mm-hmm. and as it sinks and suddenly seawater touches the boilers, there's this massive explosion that destroys the ship and it sinks. Okay. Uh, what I want to do is miniaturize that on the top of a piston by having a water-cooled engine, and instead of a water in the water jacket would be a vacuum, and it would compress large amounts of air into an incredibly small space where it would be a kernel of ionized light, and then using equivalent of a diesel injector, inject uh, a minute amount. Uh, I calculate out to 0.0035 of a cubic centimeter, which would be about the size of a grain of salt, and it would jump from a uh, a liquid to a gas to a superheated plasma-like state, um, a super uh, de- decomposition of the water into superheated steam to drive a piston. And that's the kind of stuff you need real money and some real research people. But uh, locomotives will explode when they run out of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, ship boilers explode. And uh, I have an interesting book on how some boilers traveled uh, several miles because of a steam explosion. So wow. Just mini- miniaturize it on the top of a piston. That's scary. <laughs> well, you know, th- these kind, those kind of stories are what scare a lot of people away from certain alternate fuels, too, aren't they? Yeah, anything that's new or different, I mean, people are afraid of. Imagine if we discovered gasoline just today, they might be afraid of that just on its own, because it, it can have a might, mighty explosive force, too, under the right circumstances. Oh, I'm sure if we discovered today, the government would ban it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we're going to move on now from hydrogen with one proton to uranium that has 92 protons, and the problem that faces us and just before we go to our next break, I just wanted to bring up, um, you know, this is all about burying the waste up at the plant there. And I, I got this from CBC News way back May 7th. The federal panel has given its okay to Ontario Power Generation's plan to store nuclear waste in a deep underground bunker near Kincardine, Ontario, near the, near the shore of Lake Huron. And while the panel's favorable review does not amount to a final green light for the project, it is a victory for the plan's supporters. It's called the Deep Geologic Repository, DRG. And it's, it's expected to store 200,000 cubic meters. Now, I've read different stats on that, depending which story you read and what terms they express it in. But this one says 200,000 cubic meters of low and intermediate level radioactive waste. Now, low-level radioactive waste includes such things as, this is, again, from the article, as mops, rags, protective clothing, and floor sweepings. By volume, 80% of the waste is expected to be of the low-level variety, and it'll come from three nuclear power plants in Ontario, the Bruce Pickering and Darlington sites, currently home to 18 operating can-do reactors. Now, opponents of the project worry that allowing the Concarden waste bunker will set a dangerous precedent, The review panel says the rock is geologically stable and has low permeability. OPG says the surface storage is riskier than going underground. These are all things we'll talk about later. The additional protection of hundreds of meters of rock in a difficult-to-access location, they say, is helpful. The operations phase would last about 40 years, followed by a decommissioning period of five or six years. After that comes the abandonment phase, which OPG assumes that some kind of institutional, this is, this is interesting, they assume that some kind of institutional control over the abandoned repository would last up to 300 years. Three quarters of the radioactivity would be gone 100 years after the closure. The federal government has 120 days to decide, which is this month, to approve the project, but that's not the end of the process. 
And uh, of course, OPG has said it would not construct a repository without the support of the Aboriginal groups involved on the land. Now, having said that, I have to thank you, Andy, for putting me on to this feature on uranium. You know, most of the time when we talk about these nuclear issues, the reality of what nuclear is and really means is kind of lost on most people, don't you think? Like, you know, most people, they just don't know what's at stake and what, what it really means. And uh, we only think in terms of the miraculous power that uranium is able to deliver and not on what uranium actually is and the challenges and opportunity it, it presents to us. So uh, you put me on to this, this uh, documentary. It's called Uranium, Twisting the Dragon's Tail. It's hosted by Dr. Derek Mueller, a physicist, and apparently you can buy it on DVD through PBS Home Video. And in th this next audio bite from that documentary, if it accomplishes anything, it's a beautifully simple and exquisite description of how and why uranium, along with its 14 sisters, is so fundamentally different from all of the other identified elements that we know. During the course of this two-part documentary, Dr. Miller had visited the nuclear disaster sites of Chernobyl and Fukushima and a host of other hazardous sites elsewhere around the world. So the next less than six minutes uh, will do for your understanding about radio radiation and radioactivity what <laughs> uranium itself does. I think it'll give you more of an understanding. Uh, I learned more in this six minutes than I did in, in a whole host of reading books and things of that nature. So we'll be back to continue our discussion right after this. A speck of uranium the size of the dot over an eye would contain more than two million trillion atoms. The heart of the atom is the nucleus. 20,000 times smaller than the atom itself. This tiny nucleus at the center of the atom is made of protons and neutrons, and they're tightly bound together. Unlike billiard balls, protons and neutrons can't be knocked around. They remain fixed, unchanging, inside the nucleus. And it's actually the number of protons inside each nucleus that defines the element. An atom with one proton as its nucleus is the element hydrogen. In the atomic world, it doesn't get any simpler. Every atom in the universe with one proton is hydrogen. An atom with two protons is the element helium. Now you'll notice this one also has two neutrons represented by white balls. Now some helium atoms have one neutron, some have three, but all helium atoms have precisely two protons. An atom with six protons is the element carbon. It could be the carbon in a tree or the carbon in diamond. All have exactly six protons. Each different element has a unique number of protons. Seven is nitrogen. Eight, oxygen. Seventy-nine is gold. But have a look at this. The uranium nucleus has a whopping 92 protons and usually 146 neutrons. It is the biggest nucleus on Earth. So big that it is groaning under the strain. And Ernest Rutherford and Frederick Soddy find that it is doing something extraordinary. It actually spits out chunks of itself. And these chunks are radiation. Now, they contain protons, so when uranium releases radiation, 
it's losing protons. So it no longer has 92. And that means it's no longer uranium. It's a completely different element. Ernest Rutherford and Frederick Soddy are witnessing the uranium nucleus transforming itself. And this challenges our fundamental understanding of the physical world. A nucleus doesn't just change. So this suggests the dark and magical arts of the alchemists. Alchemists were wizards and magicians. They dabbled in potions and spells. Their dream was to transform one element into another. They called it transmutation. Uranium, when it exhales radiation and energy, transforms into thorium. It actually turns into a completely different element. Uranium is a shapeshifter, and it does this naturally. A lump of uranium will do this all by itself. Thorium is radioactive too. It exhales radiation and transmutes into protactinium, a completely different element again. Rutherford calls these newly formed elements daughters, the daughters of uranium. And each daughter, in releasing radiation, changes into a brand new daughter. Radium appears, Marie Curie's radium. It is uranium's great-great-great-granddaughter. That's why it's found in uranium ore. Now, radium transmutes into her daughter, radar, which happens to be a gas. Radon transmutes into her daughter, polonium, which isn't a gas. And polonium transmutes into her daughter and her daughter. Uranium gives rise to 14 generations of change, a line of 14 daughters, and the last is lead. It's a barren daughter. Lead isn't radioactive at all. It doesn't transmute into anything. Lead isn't going anywhere. Ernest Rutherford and Frederick Soddy have solved one of the great mysteries of radioactivity. It's uranium transforming itself into lead. Uranium is doing something no one ever thought possible. It's changing its atomic structure. And with each change, it releases energy. Uranium now gives physicists a novel idea. If someone could find a way to force uranium to change, release all that energy, that person would possess a fantastical power. So, lead is dead. And that's why Superman's x-ray vision can't penetrate the stuff, I guess, eh, Andy? <laughs> and why lead also protects them from kryptonite? Which I don't think is actually on the table of elements, is it, kryptonite? <laughs> not, it, not yet. I imagine if it were, it would have to have at least 2,000 protons. 
It's got to. It's going to have to affect Superman. I worked out the math on this a little earlier. <laughs> However, on the serious side, even lead, that's the dead result of the whole process of uranium decomposing at the end, it is somewhat poisonous to human beings too, eh? With oh, lead yes. poisoning and issues like that, but and it doesn't brain present damage. And, and but it doesn't present us with with um, radiate radiation issues anymore. It no. actually becomes a protector against radiation. Yeah. So, did you find that an accurate summary of how uranium works? Pretty well. It's mm -hmm. So, how do you see the what? Now we have a problem to solve with with. Uh, the waste issue we have. And the more I've been learning about this, the less I like the idea of these burial plans that they've got. Um, tell us what some of the issues that you've run across, you know, a lot of people might, might not be aware of with respect to uranium well, there's and getting rid of it. Stuff like uh, radon gas that mm -hmm. uh, people have a detector in their house and they think, oh, it hasn't gone off, so all is well, there's no radon. And they... Uh, put in a new kitchen with a granite countertop and the radon detectors going off all the time because even the decay in uh, a granite will uh, give off uh, no radon kidding. gases. Wow. Uh, radiation is a byproduct. It's, uh, you've got uh, gravity, you've got magnetism, you've got the strong electronic force and the weak electronic force, which is the breaking down and becoming radiation. Interesting. Now, what are the unique issues of, quote, disposing of nuclear waste or well, is there even such a term you've got a substance whose half-life is measured in thousands of years mm -hmm. so uh, you really have a storage problem right there it's not like uh, um, i don't know herbicide or a pesticide that you know after a hundred years it's all broken itself down this mm -hmm. is we're talking thousands of years of uh, being a, a lethal substance so it's never disposed of you can only store it for our purposes technically the only option they've had so far has been storage. Mm -hmm. And so what is the situation? What, are we, what kind of a problem are we faced with on the larger scale? Well, the more electricity you produce, uh, the more waste you produce, and the more you have to store. Mm -hmm. It's pure mathematics. And so you, we were talking about all these issues earlier, you know, about how many reactors there are. And, you know, I was surprised what you said about nuclear submarines. You yeah, know? they still... Uh, uh, th I know the Russians, the, one of their big ones, it was a real chore to try and disassemble it, and they had all kinds of problems because uh, primitive technology and how they were running their system and contamination and cross-contamination. People die around this. Mm -hmm. All the people after Chernobyl who were trying to uh, fix it, a lot of people died of uh, assorted uh, radiation contaminations. So how many of these reactors are we dealing with? Uh, worldwide, um, there's supposed to be uh, 438. There's actually 444. A lot of them are um, uh, sort of mothball, but can be brought back online. Yeah, uh, that accounts for all the different figures you get from time to yes. time. Yes, right. and a lot of countries are building them. Uh, uh, China are currently trying to produce 24 of them. Um, let's see who else. Uh, India is producing six. They currently have 21 of them. Mm-hmm. Um, China's got 27, they're building 28. Uh, France has 58, but they're building a new one now. There's um, a whole number of countries uh, have this, and of course, there's the mothball facilities. Right. They have about a 40-year lifespan, and then they basically uh, decommission them. And that means storage again, doesn't uh, it? More storage problems, yes. Decommissioning is such a nice word. It hides uh, a, a, a problem that's not really going away. No, you... As it stands now, you have a substance whose half-life is thousands of years, and 
we've all known, like, say, a construction site that digs up something that was supposed to be known from, like a, a cemetery that, oh, they forgot about that, and that was like, only 200 years ago. So the fact that you can keep documents and be able to keep uh, uh, the location of all this, and then, of course, all the other seismic movements that can be a problem. Those are just a few of the things that worry me. Now, of course, there's beyond that, I mean, there's a lot of legitimate reasons. I'm not sure how to word this. There's a lot of legitimate reasons to fear radioactivity and what happens in these plants. But is the fear maybe a little overblown a bit? You know, I was watching that documentary on, on uh, the, the one we're just talking about, and uh, the physicist there, he had visited Chernobyl and all these other areas uh, just recently, this year, I guess, and he was explaining how, um, you know, Chernobyl is no longer uninhabitable. A lot of people are actually living in the area again, although the plant is still totally mothballed. Um, in total, apparently, according to the stats, only 28 people died of acute radiation poisoning at the time of the disaster, and since then only 15 deaths from thyroid cancer. And according to the UN report, as they reported on there, no persuasive evidence of any other health effect attributed to radiation, where, of course, he says the caveat is to date, because we don't know. And as to the town of Akuma, Japan, where the Fukushima reactor uh, caused a complete evacuation a few years back, three years now, it's been abandoned. Um, there has been a zero death toll, including the people who went in to shut the, the plant down. Do you think our fear is a bit overblown, or is it is it still serious? Uh, the Chernobyl di plant did not have a dome over the reactor. Mm -hmm. The uh, the Japanese ones did have a dome over okay, it, as did uh, Three Mile Island. Okay, uh, It's uh, basically a safety device. Uh, uh, will be a parallel, be a condom that goes over the reactor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and so that offered extra protection. Yes, it was contained within but the But even concrete. so, you know, people are thinking in terms of thousands and thousands of deaths. And, uh, you know, I think they're thinking nuclear bomb more than they are a meltdown. Are, are those two phenomenon very different from each other? Essentially, yes. Uh, aside uh, from the explosion, the, of course. Yeah, you're, you're producing heat to uh, right. produce steam to drive turbines to produce... Uh, Electricity. Interesting. Now, you don't think that burying this waste is the greatest idea, do you? No. And, uh, and you have, what is basically, before we go to the break and come back to discuss this in detail, what is your basic uh, favored method that you'd like to propose for us today? Uh, to convert it right back to its position on the periodic table where it all came from. Oh, that's an interesting, interesting way of putting it. And what does that comprise in realistic terms? Uh, we are going to uh, ship it back to its source. And, and that is? I have three versions of how it could be done. One is a semi-declassified military project, which uh, has to be modified, mm -hmm. and it will do it. There's a uh, plan B, which is the second plan, which uh, could be done on-site at the reactors. And Plan C, the technology doesn't exist yet, but probably will in the next 40 years for sure. Mm -hmm. So uh, that would, and the third one will be the cheapest and the easiest and the least difficult and absolutely the safest way to dispose of it. Well, we'll be looking forward to hearing that, and we will return after these important messages and updates right back after this. There are over 400 nuclear power plants in 30 countries and another 70 under construction. Nuclear power isn't going away. Billowing out of that chimney is not smoke, but water vapor. 
and it's not radioactive at all. In fact, the reading on my Geiger counter is, well, the lowest I've seen it anywhere in the world. Now, this nuclear power plant emits no carbon emissions at all. So, would you consider it green? Well, only if you overlook a very important problem. The way most nuclear power plants operate today, they use only about 5% of their uranium fuel. The other 95% is highly radioactive waste. Currently, the United States has 72,000 tons of nuclear waste, mostly stored in containers like these. Some of this waste must be stored for at least 100,000 years. The safety and security of this waste remains the responsibility of a company, a board of directors and shareholders who will take responsibility for 100,000 years. As, as I put the egg on top and, and the flame goes out and, and, and the air pressure decreases in, in the flask, what do you think will happen? I think I know. It's going to get sucked in. <laughs> it's going to get sucked in. Okay, I did it now. <laughs> yes! Yeah, I'm not a scientist like them. <laughs> I, I figured that out. <laughs> potato clock. Do potato clock. Uh, what's that? I, I power clock with, uh, with a potato. Shut up! You can do that? I mean, <laughs> wouldn't that solve the world's energy crisis? No. If, if you don't mind me asking, uh, the potato clock, how does it work? Is it a trick clock or a trick potato? What do you two talk about? Uh -oh. Arthur, are you okay? I'm having a problem with my pacemaker. I'll call for help. Any chance we could plug it into the potato? No. <laughs> funny, funny stuff. So is the potato power the miracle energy source of the future, Andy? <laughs> you think uh, so? Very, very small scale. <laughs> yeah, now how, how does that actually work? for those who are probably scratching their heads about that themselves. Okay. Is two, it a trick potato? No, it's uh, two dissimilar metals. Okay. Uh, the zinc uh, nail, uh, say a copper nail, mm -hmm. wire them up to a, uh, a clock, and um, sure enough, there's uh, the acid in the potato, or preferably a lemon, and the acid, much like a car battery, where you have lead and you have acid together to produce a current, mm -hmm. only, only DC current. Right. 
And so that's a huge limitation right there. <laughs> yes. So I guess we're not going to be powering our houses with potatoes in any time in the future. And we're in studio with Andy Jansen, who has a new clear vision about how to help us get rid of this nuclear waste in a much more, um, I guess, palatable way and, and a permanent way. So run, run, run through some of these ideas that you have. Oh. Run through some of these ideas you have with us. Well, Plan A, the first one, mm -hmm. uh, was based on a uh, semi-declassified Air Force project called ASAT, A-S-A-T, which was anti-satellite. And a uh, F-15 mm -hmm. uh, would uh, take off with a... Uh, was three onboard missiles it carried underneath, large ones, and uh, they had a rather large warhead, and they would go up, uh, certainly in excess of 50,000 feet, which would be uh, two stages of a Saturn V, and uh, at the maximum height, they'd be in a cubic um, kilometer of airspace where they their speed was right, and the missile would be locked onto its target, it'd be launched, Mm -hmm. So now you're delivering a solid booster up into orbit, and in orbit it finds the uh, Chinese or Russian or whoever it is that's the enemy and uh, vaporizes their satellite Okay. in the first days of a, of a so, war, so denies the enemy the right to see. So you could adapt this to do what with? Well, instead of a warhead, <laughs> we'll put nuclear waste in the what would be the warhead, and we won't detonate it, we'll just let it go, escapes Earth's gravitational field and atmosphere and allow it on a one-way trip to hopefully the sun. Uh -huh. Now, I'm sure this idea has come up before in some ways. It sounds very expensive to begin with. Oh, yes. It's very expensive. I, I sort of envisioned it as going to a nuclear site after an accident and collecting the debris with um, uh, drones and robots to uh, carry it to a near air base and then do this procedure to get rid of the worst of the material. Mm -hmm. And the warhead would actually be uh, have some lead lining in it so that nobody handling it would be contaminated. Okay. And it's, uh, it's going to be expensive. It's going to be complicated. It'll be a lot of people. And uh, there's a certain risk factor. And I even calculated out the, uh, uh, the mechanism so if it misfires, how to catch it with something called um, the Fulton device, mm -hmm. which was how the Americans... Uh, got filmed back from satellites by intercepting them um, in the upper atmosphere with aircraft that were specially used to intercept them. Isn't that interesting? And, uh, okay, that, so obviously they haven't opted for that option. They're still burying the stuff. What are some of the other options? Okay, number two um, was basically uh, some very large, uh, Gerald Bull did a lot of research on this, you know, how interesting. We were having a conversation about him just outside the studio before the show started. It turns out Grant Steen's father, who's he's manager of the station, actually talked to him and, and, and knew him. Oh, yes. yes. He's, he's a, he would have been a Canadian hero mm -hmm. if, uh, if uh, he hadn't been assassinated. A <laughs> Which I just learned today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he was uh, getting a pair of battleship guns, and he was launching shells into near-Earth orbit um, there was nothing at the time you could really send up except water, and water could be used on any of these, uh, what were then the uh, first space capsules. But uh, they found a way to get... Uh, what Water used for what? Oh, for the astronauts. Oh, I see. Yeah. There Literally was, for their consumption. Yeah. Here's, here's a piece of trivia. Um, there was a, a project in the 1950s called Thunderwell, and it was basically a very deep mine shaft, and they put a nuclear weapon in the bottom, 
and it filled up with water. Mm-hmm. And the top, they had a steel plate to contain the thing and not let anything fall in. And they detonated this weapon. It turned the water to superheated steam, went up this thunder well, and when it hit the plate, they knew from the film they had, the high-speed film, that that huge steel plate, think of a manhole cover, but a really large manhole cover, actually exceeded escape velocity and went into orbit in, I think it was like 1956. Mm-hmm. So basically the Americans actually did get something into space long before the Russians. Interesting. <laughs> okay. And what else? Well, you, theoretically you would build this gun. It um, would, uh, the one flaw with um, the current technology is you have to push a column of air out of the barrel first before the uh, shell will depart. So to achieve escape velocity with a, uh, we'll just say a half ton of... Um, now, uh, now, what kind of gun are we talking about now? A very large, high caliber, the equivalent of a battleship gun, but uh, I'm hoping to, to bring it down to scale of probably very, very um, common 155 millimeter shells. Okay. Because you're shooting a shell into a vacuum, so it's able to... Now, achieve. you're actually talking about shooting something out of literally what we might call a cannon. Yes. And having it achieve escape velocity. Yes. And heading towards the sun. Yeah. Without there, any rockets in between or airplanes lifting it up or anything like that. Correct. So that sounds, when, when, when I first heard this, that sounds kind of fantastic to me that it would even be possible. Jules Verne's? Yeah, <laughs> very much. Like, that's how they would shoot rockets up, eh, through a cannon. Yes. And if there was a guy inside that thing, I don't think he would have no. survived the Gs that were necessary. No, but you'd have to, there's all kinds of things you have to work around. Like, you can't have private aircraft in the area or remote oh, drones. of course, yeah. Uh, and not because you're going to hit them, but because of the shock wave is going to affect them. Well, you're going, is it, is it, a shock wave or a sound? Sound? Are you, t- are you talking about the sound? Um, the shock wave from the sound barrier being broken, or oh, a many different times kind over. of shock this, wave? This is hy- this is going to be hypersonic. Okay. It's not like the, the you hear a, a, a deer rifle in the distance, but we're talking a very very. Uh, or it won't be like just like a sonic boom when a jet goes by and you hear that. It'll very be occasionally. like it'll be similar to that, but uh-huh. we're going to hopefully do this in such a way. I was actually doing some paperwork in the mathematics on uh, basically a, a suppression for the sound. And I was thinking of with the American uh, reactors using what are the cooling towers and having a fine spray of water to deaden the sound as it exits. Well, th- there's a lot of things you can do like that, but even the basic thing seems very technologically challenging. So you're talking about, um, okay, you're shooting this thing out of a cannon. Now you're literally taking the uranium, the... the um, the dead uranium, the uh, the waste, right. as we call it now, and putting it in a cannon. Now, just putting it in a cannon. No, like you'd have a special, almost certainly a steel jacket with a point on one end, mm-hmm. uh, with a slight uh, lead lining on the inside for safety reasons. The material would be put in. Um, there's probably now, how, uh, how big would each package be? Like how how, how big? I'm imagining have to fit the, into the to this cannon. For yeah, starters. I'm imagining for a 155 millimeter cannon, uh, probably a half a ton, which would be a rather long, slender, um, uh, almost uh, seven feet tall and a half a ton in one shot. Oh yeah! Wow! Because it's going in a vacuum. Okay, so it, the vacuum is inside the cannon, inside the barrel. You put a rubber in, in cap. You put a rubber cap or a plastic cap or some material we don't even have yet over the top it'll have a hose connection to it you vacuum out the barrel after it's been loaded and you'll have hopefully a perfect vacuum but there's always going to be some residual 
molecules. Sure. Um, when everything's all set and you've uh, got some kind of uh, team that's calculated when to fire, how to miss uh, 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 any of the satellites, uh, how to miss the moon, how to miss uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Venus, uh, uh, how to miss Mercury, or use them for slingshotting around it. And um, there would be certain windows of uh, time to shoot and uh, just once it's picked up by the sun's gravitational field, it's a one-way trip. Okay. So, um, now where would this be shot from? You, I wouldn't, you wouldn't want to be doing this in northern Ontario, or, or would that be a safe place? Uh, you'd have to... It how would, many miles around would you want? Oh, hopefully 10 miles around, but I was actually going and, to... Uh, and what's the danger if something went wrong, if, if it didn't get out the barrel at the right speed and fell back to earth? Well, then you have a team go chase, chase it yeah. down. <laughs> um, I, I toyed with a couple of things, in, um, including a uh, drogue parachute in the event it too slow. But uh, no, once you've calculated it out and you've got the mixture right, you can do this continually. And, uh, you know, you might be 20 years on uh, one site and then it eventually gets mothballs. And uh, any cross-contamination will put that in uh, these steel sleeves with lead lining and send, send it up also. Based on how, how, I don't know if you've done this calculation yet, but based on what is already um, nuclear waste storage already stored, how many of these things would we have to shoot to get rid of what we've got? Um, I'm imagining seven days a week, 24 hours a day, when the correct windows are there, uh, a lot of compressors and vacuum pumps running. Uh, yes, uh, it uh, can be done uh, You'd probably have to humor the public and the, uh, the bureaucracies by staying, uh, say, the least contaminated material, say gloves, and you'd shred them up mm-hmm. and put them in. Uh, the two elements you would not want to put in would be water or air because they might uh, deform inside. The idea is to have dense packed material that's going in, uh, traveling in a barrel which has a vacuum ahead of it. It breaks through this plastic liner at the end, a membrane, and then enters an atmosphere uh, just not that far above sea level, and it's going to go uh, with a massive shock wave, and it'll be ionizing the air and leaving a nice streamer as it condenses a water vapor behind it, and you'll be able to see it and uh, disappear and then break up in the upper atmosphere and be gone. Almost sounds like something you could sell to tourists to watch <laughs> or something like that. You know, I was listening to that clip before the break where they were talking about this 100,000-year contract to keep mm-hmm. this stuff. And, I, you know, it came to, we have to do something different than that. Like, we're in the middle of an ice age right now, technically, in a temporary climate position of having the polar ice caps recede. And they're talking about contracts of 100,000 years when I can't believe anybody's taken that seriously. I mean... This whole part of the continent we're in right now was completely covered in ice only 10,000 years ago, right? Not 100,000 even. And our, our 21st century politicians seem to have confidence that we're capable of storing nuclear waste for 10 to 50 times that long. Um, how many polar ice caps are we going to have come up and down during that time? And I mean, recorded history of humanity only spans 3% of that time. What are these people thinking? How, how is this being taken seriously? Uh, they don't have an alternative until now, and this is the alternative. Well, it seems like uh, there are other al- alternatives, but, but that, that, I think, speaks to a bigger issue, why I think maybe we're, we're, we're putting you know, bad money after good doing this bearing right now. I think even temporarily, if we left it above ground, I think we might have more options open for us in the future. In fact, one's coming up right now on this next clip, and we'll talk about that. 
when we return on the other side. But what if there was a way to use this waste? Dr. Leslie Duan is one of a new generation of nuclear engineers designing the next generation of nuclear reactor. Most nuclear waste lasts for hundreds of thousands of years. And my reactor is able to take that long-lived waste and break it down and extract almost all of its remaining energy. And if you take all of that waste and put it into these reactors, you could power the entire world for about 72 years, even taking into account increasing demand. How is your reactor design different? It uses a liquid fluoride salt as fuel. So if you have an accident, it's able to shut itself down safely. Our reactor can run entirely on nuclear waste. It can't melt down, and it's cheaper than coal. Leslie thinks her reactor is less than a decade away. The energy in the atom is the most destructive force the world has ever seen. It can also be one of the greatest blessings God has ever given us. Which is it to be? Because on that depends the future of mankind. So what should we do with uranium? As a physicist, I'm tempted to say it's such a great source of power. It has such incredible energy density and has so many benefits that way. How can you ignore it? But after studying it, after searching the world and following the story of uranium, the feeling that I'm left with is that it's not ready to take over. And seeing how far renewable energy has come, that suggests to me that there are alternatives these days and that we don't need to go with uranium. We don't need to risk another place like this. And yet every year, uranium treats disease and every year saves more lives than it has ever destroyed, even including the atomic bombs. And just imagine a world where next generation reactors could produce massive amounts of clean, safe energy. Uranium had one last surprise for me. After all of the radioactive places I had been, what was the reading on my radiation monitor? Well, from natural background radiation, we all get an average of 2,000 microsieverts a year. And my reading was just 280 more. For me, the journey was worth the risk. So I guess that's his way of saying that we're going to be living with uranium for quite a while. I had not ever heard of this um, actually using the waste itself to, in a new generation of nuclear reactors, and I've never heard of liquid fluoride salt as a fuel. Isn't the uranium the fuel? Yes. So I'm not sure what she meant when she said the, the liquid fluoride salt is a fuel. What was, what was that about? I think that's the actual, what's going to be driving the turbines. Okay. So that's the, um, instead of what, water? The medium. The medium that, that actually creates the pressure. Yeah, remember I once talked to you about using mercury mm -hmm. to drive oh, it. Oh, that's right, yes. We talked about that when you were on last. Now, um, she says it can't melt down. It's cheaper than coal, and it's still 10 years away. Of course, we're talking about the future. So 
here's my really big question regarding all of this, that whatever new solutions may present themselves, and it sounds like they're working on some, including yourself, in the very near future, whether we shoot the waste in the sun or whether we use it as fuel or, or whatever, or some y as yet unknown third or fourth options, why would we be making plans to bury our current nuclear waste for assumed periods of 300 years to 100,000 years when it appears that viable permanent solutions would exist in mere decades? Something, something's not clicking with me here. Uh, uh, am I starting to sound like an environmentalist myself here, or <laughs> what's my problem? Uh, I think the idea of burying it under a lake and below a water table, that's just wrong. I, I can imagine if you had a, a fairly high... Especially for the times region. considered. Oh, you know? yeah. And uh, you figure just enough earth movement, with things like with uh, uh, just uh, earthquakes and the movement of the earth, uh, th th just too much of an issue there. And the contamination uh, will, will kill people. Mm -hmm. So you're going to continue with your... How, how you were going to uh, go about this or other alternatives? What oh, yeah, I have three, al three yeah. alternatives. And... Um, uh, if we don't shoot it, we can. The F-15s and afterburners can launch it. The uh, we put a vacuum in a very long barrel and uh, shoot it. Or the uh, third one, we don't have the material for it yet, but hopefully within a generation, certainly two generations, we will have it. And it's literally the material that'll be used on the space elevator. Now. I, we talked about that earlier, and I have always seen that space elevator as true science fiction stuff. I remember seeing a space elevator on an episode of Voyager called Rise, and uh, they literally, it was, it was almost like an elevator on a string going up in the space. <laughs> what holds that darn thing up? Well, you think of it as a wire. Um, you're on the space shuttle, and you have a coil of wire, and you put a weight on one end and throw it down towards, hopefully, near the equator. And on the other end, you have a weight, and you throw it up. And it pulls itself taunt. Gravity pulls it down, but centrifugal force of rotation of the planet, the centrifugal force pulls it taunt. Is that what holds it up? That's what holds I it up. So they're li well, We just don't have a material we can stretch that far yet. What, what uh, wouldn't weather and all sorts of other problems between the, the surface of the Earth and, and out in space be an issue, or is that not no, an well, issue? Well, you think about it, there would be no lightning strikes in the area. Mm -hmm. You'd have all the current would want to go down this, this wire. Uh, it produces electricity, so you'd uh, uh, put a clamp on near the end, and you'd step it down through a series of transformers and feed it into the grid. You know, I, I've seen this idea promoted in so many magazines and, yes. and illustrated in weird ways, and I'm going, wow, that just looks beyond the pale. I just and you have a magnetic field around the wire, so you can put a platform around it and uh, go up and down, and about two-thirds of the way up, you'll have to reverse your polarity to start breaking, because as the air's thin, uh, you're moving very quickly, and you have to, about two-thirds of the way up, you have to start reversing so you can actually break before you <laughs> run out of uh, wire at the top. When you say polarity, the, the polarity the, between what two points? Uh, well, the whole thing, the, um, uh, basically it's a generator. Uh, a generator is a wire moving in a magnetic field. And as you rotate this wire, which I, I suspect will be made of graphene, um, that um, as this wire rotates around this planet and passes through all the magnetic fields, it discharges and attempts to go down the wire to ground itself where you take out, uh, with, through a clamp or a connection point, step it down through a series of transformers and feed the local grid. 
Interesting. Uh, have there ever been any, any even smaller scale experiments done? Yes, in that? on the space shuttle. I believe it was a European project. Uh, they had a wire and they, ra- they unraveled it and let it go up from the space shuttle. And uh, they were producing electrical energy because the wire was moving in uh, two separate uh, uh, f- areas of flow, of, of rotation. It was mm-hmm. in two separate rotations. Uh, the one end, and there was apparently a kink in the wire, and it shorted itself out there. And the during wire the experiment, yeah, yeah, and during okay. the experiment, it burned out right at the kink in the in the wire. So there's a lot of electricity can be generated literally out of the air. My goodness, we could be looking at a whole different source of of energy to begin with, without even the nuclear option in there. Yeah. I'm starting to think. <laughs> and the most valuable places, <laughs> or to is do that this? just like the potato? Oh, well, <laughs> the most valuable places for this would be around the equator because uh-huh. the wire can go straight up. When you think of like in the northern hemisphere, the wire will be going out at a rather steep angle. So you'd have to have a satellite in orbit in some sort of perfect synchronous orbit. Yeah, geocentric. Yeah, uh, uh, at some point chosen where it can hold its position steady. Is that how it works? Yes. Wow, I had no idea that they were even thinking of anything like that. But we don't have that substance yet. You said it was some kind of graphite. No, graphene. Oh, graphene. That'll be the probably the material. You know, it's it's evolving. Mm -hmm. It's primarily just carbon. So it, it's evolving. Well, you know what they're doing about carbon these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, um, remember the new reactor with the fluoride? Uh, let me draw a parallel here for mm-hmm. you. You've burned a log in the fireplace. Now, I want you to collect all the charcoal afterwards. Uh, I want you to um, uh, not contaminate anything with it. Compress it down into blocks and put those carbon blocks back in the fireplace, a little stream of oxygen, and then reburn it. So it's kind of on the same theory. So it is doable. Mm-hmm. But if you want to really power this planet, I think the graphene and the most valuable real estate will be around the equator. And that's where you'll produce your power and uh, feed, feed a grid. Are there any other, are there any scientific groups or governmental groups or, or energy groups that you know of that are even thinking in these terms? Oh, they think of it, but it's the old story. Uh, who's going to do it first? Where's the money coming from? And the other issue, too, is where's the incentive coming from if the politicians are making it easier for them to bury the stuff in our backyard rather than to handle it? You know, I'm thinking we've got all this nuclear waste now. They're talking, here we are, we're talking about burying nuclear waste for hundreds of years to hundreds of thousands of years so that we're burdening future generations with paying for the electricity that we created just in this last half of a century or so, right? Th- that seemed just to you somehow? Plus, plus it doesn't account for all the, the, the new waste we're going to have between now and some future time. Oh, yes, yes. So, yes. so are, we, are we in trouble with this if we don't find some other solution? Yes, I, I partially found a solution because I know how to fund it now. Oh, and, and what's the secret to that? Um, I went and I did some research, and the I'm not sure if it's a collective group and or the government and industry, but in the U.S., which has 99 reactors, they spend 30.9, that's 30.9 billion with a capital B dollars, for the storage of waste. Mm-hmm. And if you take Canada's uh, 18, well, it's actually 19. Cause and it's going to get a lot larger uh, over and, time. And Chalk River, which is more, but it's... Um, it works out to Canada that uh, if it's similar to the U.S. cost, it's $312 million per reactor. So if you took, um, that's like $6 billion per year for storage in Canada. Uh, my numbers could be wrong, but this is what I, they're, mm-hmm. they're really quite, cl- they're all classified. But if you took that 
and you put uh, uh, even 80% of it to build the, uh, this big gun, um, uh, just 80% in the first year, and build this big gun, it would um, uh, take care and you'd have an assembly line, basically an industrial assembly line of, pro- of these projectiles leaving on a regular basis and taking their uh, contamination with them. And we'd be permanently rid of this stuff. It will eventually. I'm, I'm and by then we probably might even find cleaner ways of, of, of processing nuclear yeah. energy. Oh, yeah. This, uh, we're, we're talking a couple of generations to dispose of all this under really good conditions. And um, it, it is technically possible. And the neat thing is the money's there. It, all in, you need the 80% the first year and then a, a fraction of that 80%, maybe even 10%, to maintain this equipment and, uh, and staff it and uh, run it and, uh, and uh, get all the, uh, uh, you know, safety police have to take care of all the stuff and uh, all the government bureaucracies. But yes, and that might be a special interest to certain intelligence communities. Well, it's somewhat reassuring to know that there are a number of people, not just yourself, but other people too, working on these very issues because it appears we're going to have a very serious problem in the future if we don't address nuclear energy and our waste in a more permanent way. This is not like garbage that we normally throw out in the the family waste paper basket. Andy, I want to thank you for being our guest today. told you that hour would go by quickly. And uh, we're done for uh, for another week. So be sure to join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, stay right, act right, and be right back here next week. We'll see you then. Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright So now let's bring out theoretical physicist Dr. Sheldon Cooper! (laughs) Hello female children Allow me to inspire you with a story about a great female scientist Polish-born French-educated, Madame Curie, co-discoverer of radioactivity. She was a hero of science until her hair fell out, her vomit and stool became filled with blood, and she was poisoned to death by her own discovery. With a little hard work, I see no reason why that can't happen to any of you. Are we done? Can we go?